was afraid of judgment. I was afraid of how people would view me as a number written off in the system. This is episode number 40. Keep moving forward with Felicia Wilson. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to make a brief announcement and invite all of our listeners to our upcoming conference on October 20th in Philadelphia called Path to Resilience, a conference where you have a chance to connect with hundreds of people who are going through a similar journey that you are, a conference where you'll have a chance to hear from speakers from all over the country, including April Dinwiddie, Adele Harris, Tiffany Jacobs, Stacy Johnson, Felicia Wilson, Nathaniel Williams, and myself included. For more information, please go to overcomingodds.today forward slash path to resilience. Now, let's get back to our guest. Transitions. She was in 63 foster homes between 4 and 21 years of age. 63 different placements, a number that is simply unimaginable to most, if not all of us. Without further ado, please welcome Felicia Wilson. First of all, Felicia, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. And what I wanted to do, and this is how I was envisioning of starting off this particular episode, was... For those who aren't familiar with your background and your story, could you tell us a little bit about your upbringing and your vision moving forward with the work that you're doing right now? Okay, sure, no problem. My name is Felicia Wilson, and I am the CEO and founder of Fear Everything and Rise LLC, located in Newark, Delaware. Um I grew up in a New York City foster care system from the age of four up until the age of 21. Um, My experience growing up was a little bit rough, Um, had great difficulty accepting some of the things that I've been through, what I had to encounter um, in a system designed to fail children um, without any real or adequate guidance. Um, What made me take this journey to start my business was that I saw that the young population from the age 16 to 21 struggled a great ordeal when their goal wasn't adoption. Um, Like myself, my goal was independent living. And one of the things that I realized was that there was no adequate training coming from the administrators or the foster parents to help prepare me to age out properly. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't teach me financial literacy. And when I got to that age of getting close to aging out, 
um, I ended, I almost ended up in a shelter with nowhere to turn, nowhere to go until one of my foster parents I had stepped in and said, hey, I can't allow her to go into a shelter knowing that she was once my child and I was responsible for her. And she said her exact words were, if it is my job to care for her or any other child in my home, it is also my job to make sure that they succeed. And she acknowledged that she failed to do her part, but she made it her job to correct the wrong mm. um, by allowing me to stay with her um, and mapping out a plan. One of the things that she said to me, you know, when I sat down with her, my social worker, um, my independent living, you know, um, director was, I will keep her in my home. However, there will be certain conditions that she must must follow that I will not compromise on at all. Mm -hmm. um, in order for her to be successful, she has to go to school. I don't want her to focus on getting a job right now. I want her to focus on getting an education because her getting an education long-term is what's going to help her become stable. It's, what, it's what's going to help her maintain, get, and land an adequate job that can provide her with decent pay so that she can take care of herself and she's not homeless. Mm -hmm. um, and I was fortunate enough to land a job with her daughter, who was the supervisor of a catering hall um, in Long Island, New York, part-time. And that was also another condition. I couldn't work full-time. I would only be able to work part-time so that I can focus on my studies. Um, and she charged me $50 a week for my room. And I paid that gracefully. You know, every week she wanted her money by Saturday. If her money was given later than Saturday, she would charge me a $2 fee. I didn't realize why she was charging a $2 fee, but I understood it as I transitioned on my own. Um, she was more so preparing me, you know, in the sense that, hey, you know, if you have rent to pay, you have to pay your rent on time or this is the consequence behind it. Mm -hmm. So until today, I actually still follow that same path that she has taught me, pay your bills on time. Mm -hmm. um, and I still keep in contact with her. So that's how I got to this is because I saw there was no adequate training for young people to help them age out. So I wanted to be able to give them that piece that they're missing. And because I have the, the lived experience, I realized that a lot of administrators have the educational piece, but they don't have the experience piece. Mm -hmm. And the experience will always supersede um, education. But when you have both of them, the experience and the education, you can combine them together to really provide resources to our young people, whether, you know, it's a, a child aging out of the social service field, or if it's an adopted child um, struggling to be accepted or find their way beyond leaving home. Yeah. When when you finally got that freedom, as far as you understood that you're on your own, and you know you brought up the story of how um, you were you felt like you were finally paying the bills, and you were you had a job, and you were pursuing something within the education field. What did that feel like? Because I'm sure with something like that, there's also there also comes a great responsibility from your end as far as, okay, now that I have a place to live, that means I have a bill to pay. Now that I have to go to school, that means I have to find a way to get 
to get to that school. What I understand that there is, uh, and this goes beyond foster care and adoption, that is, you know, when we're given those opportunities to be free and to be on our own, I think sometimes we actually misunderstand what that fully means. So in your case, what, what was that feeling like when you finally were able to understand, okay, I am free and I can make whatever life I want out of this? Well, once I realized that I was free and, you know, it was time for me to go out there and explore the world, explore life, I realized that everything that my foster mother has set up has has guided me. Um, it made me feel good, but at the same time, I was very, very nervous because it was something that was new. You know, it was something that I wasn't so much used to doing on my own because I had a little guidance. You know, it's different when you have someone guiding you and you fall. You always have that place to go back to for comfortability, mm-hmm. you know. And I realized that as long as I have that place to go back for comfortability, if something went wrong where I wasn't able to pay my bills, I would always be able to say, hey, mom, you know, I'm short on my light bill. or I'm short on this. And she was there to supply it. But I realized as I got older, you know, you have to get out of that mindset of knowing that you have that secure place. Because I realized as long as I had that secure place, I was still never really independent the way I needed to be as an adult came to taking care of myself, taking care of my bills, you know, um, being able to make certain decisions on my own. Um, So I knew that in order for me to feel safe, in order for me to feel secure, I had to be willing to make the sacrifices that I needed to make in order to be able to pay the light bill, in order to be able to pay my rent. And after a while, once I started getting in that rhythm of, you know what, I may want these pair of sneakers, but guess what? My rent is more important. Mm-hmm. So that $100 pair of sneakers, you know, that's not going to benefit me because I already have shoes in my closet, you know, or even clothes to put on my back. It takes away from a bill that needed to be paid. So once I was able to grasp that concept and that mindset and mindset and know, hey, you know what, you always need a roof over your head. It made me feel like I was empowered. I was empowered to make the right decisions. I was empowered to know that I was able to not have to go back to, you know, my foster mom, you know, knowing that I made the right decision. So Mm -hmm. it, it, it helped me feel good, but it also helped me feel strong and independent especially as a woman, you know. Mm -hmm. How would you describe your foster mom? If you were given one word to describe the type of role that she's played in your life, what would that word be? Loving. Mm. Loving. And I say loving because as a kid growing up, not having that that stable mother figure in your life, um, and being a kid that went through 63 foster homes like myself, you know, I've always wanted that simple hug. I always wanted to know that someone accepted my flaws and all. Um, I wanted to know that no matter what decisions I made, right or wrong, at the end of the day, I wouldn't be judged. I wanted to know that if I fell short of anything I've tried in life, you know, whatever, whether it be short, you know, short-term goals, long-term goals. At the end of the day, somebody would still accept me and love me the same. And she was that foster mother, you know, and the good thing about it, even so today, we still keep in touch. 
my kids call her grandma because that's who they know is grandma, you know. Um, so, yeah. You mentioned something very important, and that is you had said the fact how you went through 63 different yes, foster homes. Mm-hmm. How have you accepted the things that have happened to you? Because that's that's obviously a very unique experience for anyone, including yourself. I can't say that I've been through 63 different placements, nor can hundred or a thousand of other people that I know around me at this particular time. So how have you accepted that fact? And then also, what were some of the challenges? Are there stories in particular that come in mind that, you know, kind of reflect the, the pain you've experienced, but then also maybe the strength that you've gained through that, through that many transitions? Um, yes. So, the experience going through 63 different foster homes was a tough one to swallow because I knew what I was entitled to. Um, and I also had to face the fact that, you know, there are going to be times where the people that are responsible for providing services to you, providing care to you, don't love you. You know, they're here to do it for the money, you know, Mm -hmm. um, growing up in foster care, it's, um, one of those things where people look at it more so as a job instead of a parenting role, instead of being that resource parent to lost children like myself. Um, and I had to learn that when things didn't go my way, when I was, you know, in these, these four songs and stuff like that, the right way to go about it was to voice your opinion respectfully, not disrespectfully. And I think some of the foster homes that I've been in, once I've realized that a lot of them were doing it just for money, it took me to that place of rebelling against them um, in the sense that once they realized that I saw what was going on and I would, you know, say something to them, call them out about it, then that's when they wanted to change a little bit. But by that time, I felt like it was a little too late. Um, So some of the movements throughout my homes, I've caused, and I can own it, you know, when I think back about it. um, I did a lot of fighting Oleg as a kid growing up because I was so angry. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I would lash out at foster parents that showed that they cared, I would lash out at foster parents that was doing it just for the money until I reached about 12 or 13 years old. Um, I realized that the one home that I was in, um, it was one of those homes where <clears throat> she loved all the kids that, you know, came through her doors. It didn't matter if you were a child, you know, she had her own two children but excuse me she made it very well known that it doesn't matter what you do i'm not gonna leave you um with my brother being raped in one of our foster homes and him being in that home and i saw how she loved him how she nurtured him you know i saw how when he got sick and when he was feeling weak she stood by her word you know and that's the moment I knew that I was now safe um, and I could let that guard down. I knew that, 
you know, there are good people in the world. I was embarrassed for so long um, <clears throat> being a, a foster child that I would hide. You know, I would hide in the darkness. So when I would see my friends with their parents and things like that, I didn't know how to react to it. I didn't know how to respond to it. And she would tell me, you know, you may not have your real mom or your real dad, but I'm your mom. I'm not your foster mom. You can call me mom, you know. That's when I realized, like, you don't have to keep going through it, you know. You don't have to keep lashing out. You don't have to keep that angry little kid, you know. You can just be that regular, normal kid that you were meant to be, you know. Um, But it was still hard for me. It, It was still a challenge for me because... I felt like I had something to prove to people um, until I realized, like, the more you feel like you need to prove things to people about your toughness and who you are, you're still struggling inside with your own crisis. You're still struggling inside with your own identity. Um, And accepting me was one of those things that, you know, she would always say, you know, people are either going to love you or hate you, but either way, you're going to be okay. You are still you, you know, walk in your purpose, be the person that God designed you to be. But it was still a challenge. It was still hard for me to accept it because I felt like there was something there that was missing that she wasn't able to give me. And I think that was answers to my past. Um, growing up, I wanted to always know, and this is one of the toughest challenges for me, was letting go. Um I just wanted to always know what my mom looked like. You know, I wanted to know what my father looked like. I wanted to always know what would it have felt like if I was in a home with both of my parents, because the ideal look of a household or family is a mother and father in the home together, raising that child or raising a child. Um, And I struggle with that, you know, because I never had pictures to look at. Um, I didn't have an aunt or uncle that can give me those answers. A lot of times, even when she was giving me the love that I really wanted and the love that I needed, I would hold back because in the back of my mind, I knew she wasn't my biological mother. Um, So it was just hard for me to accept letting go, you know, like letting that wall down to know that there are people out there that are good. There are people out out there that are bad, but the people that are out there that are good and trying to help, you have to let that wall down. You don't have to let it down all the way, but you can let them in enough to say, you know what, I'm going to see what they're about or what they're really made of that could be beneficial for me so that they can help me, you know, overcome my hardships, you know, and and, and help me move forward. So one of the, the most challenges for me was accepting, um, that I was a foster child, accepting that I have been given these cards and I had to learn to play them. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I got older, I also realized, you know, there are going to be times where you're going to feel like an outcast, but know that that feeling like an outcast is preparing you and giving you that version of what you need to help those other foster children overcome, help the administrators that you're working with learn um, to help young kids going through forced to kill care know that they're okay and they will be okay mm-hmm. but more so mm-hmm. teaching foster you know foster families foster parents how to properly love a child to help them feel comfortable and secure in your environment you know so that they're not questioning if they're good and be a part of your family 
Right. So, <laughs> How much of a role would you say the language that you've used with yourself played in something like this? Because one of the things that I've been fortunate enough to learn from a very early age is that the words you use with yourself oftentimes, whether that's positive thinking or positive thoughts in general, do end up manifesting into some of those parts of the, the some of the thoughts actually become reality. And so in moments like that, when you were trying to put the guard down and, you know, you said um, put the wall down when it came to accepting other people into your life and more so accepting your identity, what, how did you get through that? Like, what were some of the routines you created for yourself to maybe catch yourself when you felt like you were slipping or when you were in a new environment with a group of strangers and you had to share um, a part about yourself as far as where you came from or what you were going through at that current moment. Is there anything that stands out in particular that worked and then some of the things maybe that didn't work as well? Um, so some of the things that did work was that um, as I was, you know, journeying a foster care system, I learned to surround myself with people um, that had some of the same goals that I had, whether it was, you know, graduating high school, whether it was, you know, going to college, um, you know, studying behavior of people to see how to adapt. Um, once I was able to find those people, I would latch on to those people because it was a way for me to escape my past and fight my demons. Um, and I realized being around those people, they have rubbed off on me. You know, um, this young lady that I went, I was in high school with, um, we're still friends to this day, even after college. Um, she's now a social worker. And when we were, you know, going through high school, she would always say, I'm going to be a social worker. And I would say, why do you want to be a social worker? And she was like, why not? You know, I want to impact change in people's lives, you know. I want to do something that a lot of young people don't think about our age. She said, some young people our age don't think about helping other people overcome their struggles, their past, and, and taking, you know, I believe in taking them into the future to be their best self. Um, and from there, she would say to me, um, she knew I was in foster care. Um, how she knew, I didn't know. But she would always say to me, you never invite me over. You know, you never invite me for a play date at your house or whatever. And I would just be like, you know, I'm not into stuff like that. And she used to say, no, something is wrong, you know. And then as time went by, I would tell her, like, yeah, you know, I'm in foster care, so I don't have that same functioning of a family that you have, you know, well-rounded and stuff. Um, and she would tell me from that moment, every day, she said, I don't care how you feel. She said, every single day you get up. She said, you go to the bathroom, you close the door, you look in the mirror and tell yourself, today will be a good day. I still do it to this day. She said, today will be a good day. I am important. I will show up in the world as God has designed me to live in my purpose and show up in the world. Um, and I realized the more, I'm sorry, it's a little emotional talking about it. I realized that the more I said it to myself, the more I started gaining control over my mind and how I thought about me. And as I started moving through, you know, this thing called life, I realized that the more I looked in the mirror and said, 
I am worth it, the more I looked in the mirror and said, I was designed to show up and fulfill my purpose according to God, I realized that the negative thoughts I had in my mind started to vanish. And as as as, as every day went by and I started saying more positive things, I, I started walking more positively, I would put a smile on my face and not look so mean. I realized that that was the beginning stage of changing my thought process. So instead of feeling like I needed to go out in, in the world and fight people, I started to say some things just need to roll off your back, and this is how you roll them off. In your mind, when things make you upset, you say, this is not the way to do it. I can speak how I feel respectfully and not be disrespectful about it. And I started doing that as time went on. I started doing it more and more. Um, and it actually helped me start writing. Before I left high school, I actually was able to develop concept and mindset that if I really want to help young people and show up in the world, I can't be thinking negative and tell young people not to think like that, but yet I'm thinking like that. So I said, you know what? I want to be able to walk the walk and talk the talk. So the more I started working on myself mentally and finding myself with those people that were, were in a position to help foster children, in a position to mentor them, in a position to guide them, I realized that you have what it takes. You have to be willing to take all your shame. You have to be willing to take all your guilt and put it out there in the universe and set yourself free. Because I think when, you, when you're able to set yourself free, being around people and seeing how they accept their responsibility and the role that they play in their lives, they're able to adjust their mindset. So I started doing the same thing because I'm like, when I speak to young people, or I speak to the administrators or the force of parents dealing with them, I want to be able to get across to them from not personal experience, but from also thinking about what it took for me to get where I am today. Um, so just being around people and, and, and learning to accept the challenges of life and, and listening to the positive things and not the negative things has really set me on a path um, to be positive. You know, I have no place for negativity in life right now. Um, it doesn't matter if I'm going through something or a loved one or, you know, a, a young person or an alumni, I'm going to always be there to give them words of encouragement because I think more words of encouragement frees the mind as opposed to negativity, which condemns the mind Absolutely. and keeps the stuck. So, yeah. What were you most afraid of when you first started sharing your story? And from there, how did you develop the courage and strength to share that story through your book? Um, I was afraid of judgment. I was afraid of how people would view me as a number written off in the system. Um, because I always say, and I express this in a book, I say forced, being in foster care is like being in prison in a sense that when you're you're brought into the system or when you're placed in the system, whichever way you come in or enter it, you're given a number. Um, and I made it clear that that number that you get, that you're given, it follows you through your journey of foster care. Um, 
And I had to realize that that number that you're given don't have to be a permanent number. It can be a number as a reminder of where you came from, but no matter where you came from, it it didn't determine where I was going, you know? So I always tell people just because I was a foster child doesn't mean I'm any different than you. It doesn't mean that, you know, my upbringing is that much shattered by you because you have some, you know, and I had to learn this too. You have some young people that are raised by their parents, but they still go through the everyday struggle. You know, they still go through, um, you know, having to deal with their parents being incarcerated, you know, homelessness, um, moving from place to place. So I think I was more so afraid of, you know, the stigmas that came attached with being that foster child. I was more so worried of the negative responses I would get instead of looking at it from a positive side. Um, and in the in my book, in the redemption chapter, I talk about how being that written number in the system has allowed me to think outside the box and not pass judgment on other people because my past is not that free of having mistakes, you know, it's not free of doing wrong, you know, but I allowed it to um, take me to a place where I wanted to show people that it's not about where you've been, but it's about where you're going. And if you keep that open mindset and that open concept to, to journey this thing called life, where you're going is more greater than where you've been. Um, so I was more so worried about judgment, but when I saw that people was more receptive to listening to me, they were more open to hearing what I had to say because they realized once again, I had that piece that they were missing, which is the lived experience to get across to our young people. I realized that it was a market out there for me um, that some people are not doing, a lot of people don't focus on or do. Um, so that's what, what really pushed me forward was, you know, not caring about how they felt about me, but at the same time caring as well. So judgment was the biggest thing for me. That makes sense. If you were to go back and rewrite a portion of the book or the entire book or whatever it may be, what's not in the book that you would include right now? Oh, wow. Um, that's a good question. I would, <clears throat> I would include in the book where I'm at right now in life. Um, at this given moment, I would talk about the importance of mending broken relationships. Um, when I was in foster care, one of my brothers was incarcerated. He was a big-time drug dealer um, in the South Jamaica part of Queens, New York. Um, and he came into my life when I was 13. And he wasn't consistent. You know, he wasn't there. And we're not in that place. And it makes me emotional. You know, we're not in that place where I feel we should be. Um, knowing that we share the same father, knowing that we have each other and knowing that we don't live far from one another. Um, it kind of, it makes me sad inside, but I won't allow it to 
take away from the time lost, you know. I don't talk about it in a book because I feel like moving sometimes you got to leave the negative out in order to really progress forward because if you focus on that negative portion of now, then it's like, how can I continue to progress forward? Um, and I feel like that the people that are, are in between us are responsible to bring us together. Um, so I feel like you know, they have a duty to him and they have a duty to me well, um, because my niece is stuck in the middle, you know. Um, I talk about the importance of family reunification and bringing families close together and having them know that they have somebody out there in the world, you know, and it's like you're, you're, you're stressing this and you're talking about this, but you have a sibling out in the world you're not close to. So it's like, what do I need to do to break that separation between him and I to bring us closer? Because the people that stand in the middle of us, which is my, you know, my, my grandma, you know, grandmother, I feel like they're playing a major part in why we while we're separated. Um, so that's a part of the book that I would definitely talk about. Not in there. Um, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things that I've learned, and it's very similar to maybe what you're experiencing at this particular time, is that I still have a birth sister that lives in Russia, in the town that I was um, born in and eventually was adopted out of. And one of the reasons why it, it's a challenge for me is, well, the first one being is the fact that I don't speak the native language as well as I used to. So there's definitely a language barrier that almost reversed itself because when I first came to the States, I didn't speak English. And then once I got a grasp of English, I slowly began to forget Russian. So I was kind of, I kind of re reversed the two roles there. But the the relationship aspect that you brought up between, you know, your your um your brother and yourself is somewhat similar to what I experienced with myself and my sister and that is when I first started this journey of sharing my experience and the things that did happen within my household and outside of it and the orphanage life and everything like that I felt that there would be a great sense of judgment coming from maybe her or some of the other relatives within the family and the reason why is because I think oftentimes we as people tend to look at it from a um, very one-sided perspective. It's a lot harder for us to take a step back and try and understand, okay, why is this person doing this type of work? Are they, sh are they putting a bad spotlight on the people that are still living there? And that's kind of one of the things that I've been trying to understand is how do you gauge that relationship and how do you let her know that I'm doing this work as a way to help other people who have gone through a similar experience that I have and not necessarily saying, hey, you couldn't provide for me or hey, this what this is what happened or this is the way you treated our mother and, and things like that. So it's, you know, maybe in your case, how have you been able to, and this could be an ongoing process, but gain closure between yourself and your brother? Like what... What do you ask yourself as far as 
the type of questions that may help you understand that this is the way this relationship is supposed to be at this particular time. Um, I hold on to my faith. Um, I hold on to knowing that he knows I'm here. Um, I hold on to knowing that with my faith being as strong as it is, we will be reunited at some point and if and when that time happens, my arms are always open for him to come um, with no judgment passed, you know. I'm all for not reliving the past constantly, but it as a reminder of moving forward and building strong and lasting relationships with people, whether good experience or bad experience. Um, but... I will say that moving on right now at this given point in life for me is important. Um, and it's important because I realize that you can't force anyone to do what you want them to do or what you would like to happen. Um, instead, you know, I, I keep in touch with, you know, his daughter's mother, his daughter's grandmother, because they, the, his daughter's grandmother is my children's godmother. Um, so I've learned that when I speak to her, you know, when she calls to check on the kids and stuff, I've learned to not, in order to move on, not ask for him. Um, and sometimes it's hard because as a caring person, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh, how is such and such? Is he doing okay? You know, and she'll say, yeah, he's doing okay and leave it like that. Um, so that's where I leave it at in order for me to move on but it's gotten to the point now where I'm okay with like when we speak um I'm not asking for him she's not mentioning him um so that's how I'm moving on is learning to let go of what you have no control over and in this situation I have no control over um what it is that he wants to do when it comes to me as his, his younger sister but I have control over how I move forward, and that's what I focus on to move forward. That's um, but, yeah. Final thought for today's episode, and that is, when the odds are completely against you, what are some core fundamental principles that you always refer to? Oh, wow. Um, the core fundamentals I always refer to... Um, that I can reflect back on and, and really keep with me and hold through my journey is that I always say, I want to be better than the circumstances my parents were in. I want to be more than what my parents were able to provide or to give to me. And as long as you treat people with dignity, courtesy, respect, as long as you love yourself, as long as you put your best foot forward every day. Change will come. Change will happen. And when you leave the world, that impact of who and what you were will be right there. And if you leave a strong enough impact, the journey will continue beyond you. Um, meaning someone else that see what you had to offer will continue 
to carry that torch for you and show up in the world the way that you have showed up in the world. But to continue on in legacy is important. Um, and those are the principles I carry with me. Mm-hmm. And learning to accept the past for what it is and know that holding on hurts you more than freeing yourself. And I've learned that in order to, to be free, you have to really be free by forgiving. Um, and that's also why the, 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 the last chapter named it Redemption because I ask for forgiveness and I also forgive those that have hurt me, you know. Um, and those are my principles I live by. It's amazing. Well, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest on our show and sharing your story with us. It was truly a pleasure to hear it and more so be be able to become a part of your journey at this particular moment. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes, featured Stand Up and Speak Up stories, and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll look forward to having you next week.